Hey everybody, it's Alexander Dahl with Manifest Vitality once again. Uh, so I have another interview ready to go, so we're going to go ahead and jump into that one. Um, other than that, we'll just uh, keep on going through them as we get them ready. Alright, here you go. Alright, so I'm currently on the phone with Adrian. He's another one of the musicians that reached out about the interview series. So I'm going to go ahead and give him a chance to introduce himself. My name is Adrian Matthews. I am a guitarist, singer, songwriter from Los Angeles, California. I'm 60 years old. I'm still working and recording and functioning on a number of different music plays. Awesome. So why don't you kind of start at the beginning? Uh, what, when did you first find music? What was it about music that really kind of made you feel that that's what you wanted to be a part of? Um, it, I grew up in a household full of working musicians. So it was, it was ever present. And frankly, in my life, it's been the only thing that's been absolutely constant. So I just followed in the footsteps of, of the other people in the house. Awesome. So when would you say that you first like got into an instrument? When you first started like learning an instrument, or did you learn an instrument? Like, what was your? I started on piano at eight. Um, my teacher was Benny King, who was my grandfather's band leader, and he had worked for Cab Calloway before that. And then uh, at at about twelve, I had seen my first uh, video of Jimi Hendrix. And so it became all about guitar after that. Awesome. That's a, definitely a good influence there. You mentioned that you grew up in a family of working musicians. Did you end up right. uh, playing in uh, like the family band or did you kind of uh, start writing on your own and get your own band together? Oh, um, well, I did a bunch of performances with my grandfather when I was a child, um, when he was working in Las Vegas. But no, at, at 13 years old, I started playing in rock bands and have been doing that and operating as a singer-songwriter ever since. Awesome. So um, along those lines, you know, you, you kind of got yourself playing an instrument and uh, figuring out what you wanted to do with it. Uh, how long would you say it was before you kind of looked at uh, getting a band together and working with other musicians, like, outside of your family? Outside of the family, I was 15. Just neighborhood kids and, and children of some of the people that my, dad, my grandfather worked with, you know. Uh, and just folks that I met through other guys who played. A lot of folks I met at guitar shops, oddly enough. Sure. So you've spent a lot of time in, like, guitar shops and parlors and just got to kind of know your community musicians that way? In those days in Los Angeles, we had two real hotbeds for, for areas where there were music, uh, music stores. Um, one was on Ventura Boulevard and the other was on Sunset Boulevard. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, the list of people who were teaching in those stores went from Brandon Rhodes all the way through, you know, the people in Frank Zappa's band. So there was so much going on. It was, it was uh, I just, I just bathed in it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. And then how would you say your kind of interest in uh, music progressed from that? Like, since you did grow up in that environment, what were kind of your ambitions? Well, uh, constant improvement was always the, the goal. I mean, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, mm -hmm. but the, my family were very, um, they approached it as though it was something that was never completed. We were always trying to get better and always trying to evolve and always trying to improve. Mm -hmm. So I tried to get involved in any situation that I could get involved in that was going to bring me closer to playing music. Mm -hmm. So I started writing my own songs. I played in a couple of cover bands. I played for other people who were writing songs. I typically played with people who were older than me. Mm -hmm. So I got 
put onto a bunch of things that I probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. Sure. And so where would you say that that kind of uh, took you? Like, did you get into recording right away or were you focused on like live performances? Uh, originally, it was live performances. Like, frankly, the first bands that I was playing with, we did um, high school dances almost exclusively because we were high school kids. Mm-hmm. And so it worked out very, very well. When I was 16, I bought a 12-string guitar, and I must have been the only guy in the area who had one, because at that point, I started getting calls to do all kinds of recording sessions. Nothing fancy, you know, just eight-track stuff where I go in and play the rhythm parts for some guy's song. Mm -hmm. But there weren't that many people who had a 12-string, so I got to do all kinds of stuff because I had one. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely a, a good way to get in. Right, right. Yeah, anytime you have a, you know, you can offer a flavor that other people don't have, they'll call you for that flavor. And so how how would you say, how many bands would you say that that kind of worked out with? Um, you know, they, they heard you had the 12 string and then you went in and did session work. Uh, I, I worked for a fellow named Wayne Irwin, who had a studio called Lucky Dog Studios. And Wayne got his start because he was the pick guitar player for the Monkees when they were on tour. Oh, and okay. he, he had a demo studio in Bennett. Mm-hmm. So I was working for him and I was working every weekend for probably three years. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was a constant, like, you know, every Friday he'd call me, Hey, come Saturday, you know, and it was whoever showed up and whatever, whatever the thing was. Sure. Definitely. And the then... actual fans happened after that. Okay. And then how would you say that that kind of, uh, progressed into you know learning an instrument and then playing in a band like uh in your adult years per se it laid the groundwork and the ear training was amazing because i i was uh in the studio work i was not playing songs that i'd ever heard before mm-hmm. so it, it was forcing me into places that i wouldn't have gone otherwise and and my writing was a tremendously affected by it because you know you start hearing how other people use certain motifs and you borrow them steal them and sure. use them on your own definitely uh in addition, a couple of the guys that i wound up doing sessions for i did do a couple of gigs for or i went and played in other circumstances with or they came and played on stuff that i was doing so it became a really nice little community mm. now that looks at like seven right now and i i noticed that your phone number is in minnesota it is <laughs> So I don't know if you're how familiar you are with LA or what the LA scene was like, but in seventy nine eighty the hot the Sunset Strip exploded. So okay. we had like three clubs, four bands a night, six nights a week. Like you, if you if you couldn't find live music, you were trying not to. Mm-hmm. Right. So I... at that point, it was it was gigs everywhere. So I I was playing in two and three different bands and I wasn't, you know, ever going home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't taking care of myself. But I but the exposure to different things and playing that much really forced me to focus on my musicianship, which in the in the long run was the best thing you could have ever had. Definitely. That that was definitely the era like the golden age of music in LA for sure. Yeah, I mean yeah. I played shows with all those bands that came out of here. So, so you've mentioned that you've been playing music for, you know, a good 30, 40 years. What would you say was kind of your, like, what was your kind of favorite era that you played music in your life? Not necessarily an era of music, but. Honestly, 
the the period from 1994 to 2000 when I was playing the Chitlin Circuit in South was the the most actual fun I had as a player. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Uh, you kind of broke up there slightly. Okay. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. So um, I left California in 1994, mm-hmm. and I moved to Jackson, I took a job playing uh, in a uh, local touring band. N- you know, not, not anybody famous or anything like that, but they were just, uh, they played what's called the Chitlin Circuit, which is the old beef joints in Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and Tennessee. Okay, okay. So I did, I did some tours with Bobby Rush and Johnny Taylor and um, R.L. Burnside and a whole bunch of other, like, lesser-known blues guys. But it was, it was such a different experience than anything I'd ever done before, and it got to the root of American music in a way that I had not experienced before. Sure, So yeah. it was really, yeah, it was such a vibrant time for me personally that, that that's what I would have to, that's where I would have to go with that end. Well, I could definitely see how going from, like, the L.A. music scene to, like, kind of the, the South Coast music scene would be very different. Yeah, you know, it's, Stevie Ray Vaughan had just passed at that point, mm-hmm. and so you had this weird cross-section of blues players that were suddenly, like, thrust into the Stevie Ray thing, having metal players who were now jumping into the new blues craze that was going on, and then those of us who came out of the Jimi Hendrix Led Zeppelin school who suddenly got revitalized into that thing. It was, it was a real interesting convergence of stuff. That mm. took place at that time, right before the grunge thing totally took over. Sure, definitely, yeah. And then, so d- did you kind of have the same ambition to pass music on to your kids as well? Uh, I, I, my personality prevented me from ever having children. Ah, sure, but uh, I've been <laughs> teaching music since '94. Okay, and so, yeah, it, it was it was always uh, Pop always said it wasn't mine to teach. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, you have it for a period of time, and then you gift it to the next person. So I still, I still teach. That's cool. What, what made you kind of uh, want to pick up teaching in addition to playing? Was it just that desire to pass it on? It, it was a combination of getting together with with really, really high level jazz musicians who who were on a level that I was nowhere near. And, I, and realizing, oh, my God, yeah, I'm an okay rock player, but when I get up with these guys, I can't handle so I need to learn. Mm-hmm. And that and that thing in my head of my grandfather always saying, get better every day, give back to the music. Mm-hmm. Get better every day, give back to the music. The reason, you know, and he would tell me, the reason why I'm having Benny King teach you is to give back to the music. Because you have to teach it forward to the next generation. Yeah, that's... Defi- it goes away. That's definitely a powerful message. Um, so what are a couple stories that you have of, uh, you know, whether it be playing live or recording that, you know, are really prominent in your memory? Uh, can I give you two? One yeah. directly for me, one for him? Absolutely. So I was an ignoramus as a child. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any understanding of where I was or what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I thought that if I went to Minnesota to visit you and you turned on your TV, I'd see your hometown. Uh. I didn't understand the Hollywood mechanism. I didn't understand that my grandfather was who he was 
and that my uncle Sammy was Sammy Davis Jr., and that my aunt Pearl was Pearl Bailey. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? I didn't, that, that didn't, I didn't know that. These were the people that came over to the house and sang and danced and celebrated the holidays. Sure. They were my family. They weren't, I didn't have any sense that anybody knew who these people were. So fast forward to me being in my early 20s, I'm totally into the rock and roll thing. But, you know, all of the stuff my grandfather tried to show me was, was you know, silly old person stuff. So I didn't really pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. I'm in the hospital with him. He's just had a triple bypass surgery. I'm going to cuss a little bit. I hope that's okay. That's okay. So um, he just had triple bypass surgery. This is 1984. So we don't have cell phones. We don't have all, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So each of us took turns in his hospital room answering his phone. And so the phone rang, and I picked it up, and I said, Daniel's Daniel room? And this voice says, let me talk to Billy Kate. And I, I'm like, um, uh, may I ask you phone? Wow. And so I put my hand on the phone, and I looked at my grandfather, and I said, I'm not sure, but I think Miles Davis is on the phone. <laughs> and my grandfather picked up the phone and put it to his ear, and he said, motherfucker, how are you? <laughs> and when he hung up the phone, I said, you and I have to talk. Right. <laughs> and he gave me a history lesson that radically changed my thought process about music because it, it let me know that there was, there no, there's no stylistic differences. You know what I'm saying? The music is the music. Right. You, you either take your life to it or you don't. You know, and, and that was my first wake-up call of, no, Grandpa's not just some dumb little guy. He's the guy who has the knowledge to use it. Right. So fast forward a couple of years, and I'm playing in New York City. I'm playing at a place called um, Chicago Blues. It's a little blues club on 86th and Lexington on the Upper East Side. And every Sunday night, they do a blues jam. Mm-hmm. Well, it's New York City, right? So your blues jam, I mean, some of the players that show up are the working session players from the city, right? Mm-hmm. So I go in, and I'm you know, plug in, we play like four or five songs and really have a good time. I go around to everybody and introduce myself and I'm the keyboard player, this big tall fellow everybody says, Hey man, that was fun. I'm Bruce, nice to meet you. I said, Hi Bruce, I'm Bruce. I walked out. And as I'm packing up my gear, this girl comes up to me and she says, How long have you been playing in the rain? And I, I said, What? That's Bruce Hornsby. How long have you been in the band? I had no clue that I just played with Will Lee from the David Letterman band, Steve's dad from Steely Dan, and Bruce Orange. No clue. Jeez. Right? I, I had gotten so involved in how fun it was to play with, those, with guys at that level mm-hmm. that it never dawned on me who these guys at that level would be. Yeah, I suppose at that point, you know, if you're just, the musician is the musician. They're just playing an instrument. And, and they looked at me like, so you're the guitar player in this cat. They, there was nothing. They didn't, they didn't have any sense of, I'm this rock star and you're not. Mm-hmm. It was none of that. It was, you know, it was, it was about the music and, and nothing. There was, not, there was no other thing. Sure. Yeah, I just remember walking away going, wow, you know, when, when you get with the real guys, that's mm-hmm. what happens. I'm at a loss for words. That's fucking amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a really cool night. I, I mean, in retrospect, I probably didn't network as well as I could have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, to be just a guy who plays bars and is trying to make his way through this and to 
get a chance to jam with guys who get that part of it. It was just really, really cool. Sure. So I, I assume you're still making music. Um, is there a, a specific band that you're playing with? Is there uh, any like links or social media where people can kind of take a listen to the stuff you're working on? Um, well, we've just gone through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So all of the, the stuff I had brewing prior to that got kind of blown out of the window. The good news was I... Um, got acquired by a very small record label called Get Off My Lawn Records. Nice. They are an independent label out of Montclair, California, run by a wonderful fellow named Don Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don is a uh, Berkeley uh, school alumni and a uh, multi-instrumentalist. He's a freak of nature. He plays like 40 instruments. And, you know, if he doesn't have a piece of equipment to do what he wants, he'll build it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so he had, he had uh, we were just kind of messing around right before the pandemic started. And he threw an idea my way where he wanted to do a, uh, a piece with 12-string guitar and pedal steel, if he plays pedal steel. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want it to be country. And that intrigued me because I, I don't really have a whole lot of experiential knowledge of the pedal steel away from country. Mm-hmm. Right? So I was like, okay. And then right when the whole COVID thing happened, he sent me a text and he's like, I've got a recording studio in my house. You need my wife. Let's cut a record now. Mm-hmm. And so we went in and we cut 12 songs that came out spectacular. Uh, the group is called Strings 22. There's 22 strings to okay. We have a Facebook page and we are in the process of releasing a uh, full length DVD of what we did during the time. Awesome. That sounds very interesting. You know, it, 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 I, I don't think if you would, if you would ask me, Maybe 10 projects you would never ever do in your life. Mm-hmm. This probably would have been one of the 10 that I would have said just because it seems so weird. Mm-hmm. I'm so blown away by the results that I, I don't even know what to say. Well, I've, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for it. That sounds like a, a good listen. And We've got some stuff up on the Facebook page right now, and then we're editing video as it goes. Okay, sure. So what I like to do for uh, the people that I interview is give them the opportunity to put out like a message. So basically just a message that you kind of feel resonates with you. Like like universally? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Live and let live. Love and let love. 